everyone, a bonus episode of the EdTech podcast today as we throw back to Ian Hurd recording at the graduation of the first cohort of teachers to complete a nationally recognised qualification from the National Centre for Computing Education or the NCCE. This event was held at the London offices of Google, who provided financial and practical support to help create the Computer Science Accelerator programme to train teachers to be able to teach the subject at GCSE. Ian is first in conversation with Professor Simon Payton-Jones, the NCCE chair, and also a researcher at Microsoft Research in Cambridge, England, specialising in such things as functional programming languages, particularly lazy functional programming, which is how I think I operate on almost a daily basis. Following his chat with Simon, Ian catches up with Lisa Belozarova from Google.org, who is Program Manager for Europe, Middle East and Africa. And in both conversations, there is some sharing of some good reads and inspirational tech for teachers in this space. Also in this episode, two opportunities for teachers to offer their students real-world learning opportunities through some competitions both Nesta and the Design Museum are running. The deadlines are coming up for both, so if it sounds exciting, check out the show notes for links to apply. Here's Constant Agerman, Nesta's Head of Thriving Communities, to talk about the Longitude Explorer Prize, which focuses on getting a more diverse group of young people into AI, tech and innovation, and is backed by £1 million of government support. Listen closely for all the details. Hi. I'm Constance Adjaman, Head of Thriving Communities at Nesta Challenges. We're calling on all secondary schools and youth groups across the UK to enter teams of 11 to 16 year olds to our Longitude Explorer Prize. With cash prizes of up to £25,000 available for the winning teams. The prize is now in its third year and this year's theme is AI. This is AI in its broadest sense. Think self-driving cars and Siri. We want you to inspire your young people to create pioneering technological solutions to society's most pressing issues. From coming up with solutions to climate change to helping people be independent in later life. The prize is easy to apply for. We've worked with professionals in the education sector to develop free learning materials to kickstart creative thinking, which could be easily incorporated into lesson plans, after school activities or youth club activities. The materials fully support the curriculum and aim to inspire entrepreneurship among young people and engage them with innovation by encouraging them to apply STEM knowledge. Submissions are open until 29th of November, so head to Longitude Explorer Prize website for more information and get applying. Support the next generation of digital entrepreneurs today. For any design thinkers out there keen to impress on students the amazing opportunities in the world of design, keep listening to the end of this week's episode to also hear from Severa Davis, Head of Learning at the Design Museum in the UK. Severa talks about the Design Museum's competition, Design Ventura, which offers the amazing opportunity to uh, have students' works actually for sale in the Design Museum shop. If I remember correctly, the competition is open for international listeners also. Uh, The entry deadline is the 13th of November, so get your skates on. And if you don't make this round for these amazing competitions, then now you know, and there is always next year. (laughs) 
Okay, so I'm honoured to be uh, sat here with Simon Payton-Jones, Chair of the National Centre for Computing and Education, um, at this very lovely event, celebrating the success of the programme so far. So hello, Simon. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet with you. Uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to meet with me. It's very nice to be here. I'm a computer science researcher at Microsoft's Research Lab in Cambridge, so my day job is just computer science research. This is my, is my spare time activity being here. Um, but this event has been a graduation event for 85 of the 100-and-something teachers who've now completed the Computer Science Accelerator course for the National Centre for Computing Education. They are the first graduates, the guinea pigs, of the new National Centre's programmes. You were talking earlier to the crowd about the importance of those people becoming the very people that go out and talk to other people about yeah. this and using that as, as a way of kind of like, you know, keeping the momentum up of, yeah. this, of this program. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, feel that very strongly. I mean, teachers are under a lot of pressure and it can often feel just feel in their hearts to them each day as if they're sort of, you know, trudging along and um, dealing with all, all the demands that press in on them. I would like to give, you know, the computing teachers involved in this program, just every computing teacher in the country, this sort of sense of, I'm part of something that is actually truly exciting at an international level. I am part of making my children's lives better. Um, and I actually have a meaningful role to play in that, as well as my daily trudge. You know, <laughs> that, can, that can sort of help you, mo- motivate you to feel this is all worth it. <laughs> make you get out of bed in the morning. That's my hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So I noticed that the, uh, the Research Bites newsletter, for example, and CAS Chat, you know, for a long time, they're really good examples of how that community of interest can, you know, support each other and create more flexible teaching practice. But do you um, envisage, do you envisage any new uh, technological solutions to increase kind of flexible access to learning for the teachers on the CBD, which maybe give more weighting perhaps to kind of formative assessment to help drive participation on the Accelerator program, for example, for teachers who are more time poor and can't turn up to these things in, uh, face-to-face? Oh, yes. So um, the National Centre for Computing Education, as well as producing all these face-to-face courses, also um, has produced and it will produce more online training courses, which are, uh, so they're available. You can do them whenever you like, but they, they run sort of, they usually run in a synchronous fashion so that you do it in a particular four-week chunk or eight-week chunk, and that means you get to interact with other people who are doing the same course at the same time. This isn't just limited to Britain. Um, teachers worldwide are using these online courses so that's that's one thing is that it sort of liberates you a bit from the face-to-face stuff face-to-face is also important so it's not yep. just the um and it's not just courses the um there's a there's a kind of very productive complementarity going on at the moment on the one hand we've got the national center for computing education which is centrally funded top-down curated material very high quality um organized courses and so forth but with a top-down drive. And on the other, we got the Computing at School Community of Practice, which now has, you know, 32,000 members, of whom probably 20,000 are school teachers, perhaps, perhaps 25,000. So, so this is very much grassroots. This is teachers talking to teachers about their best practice. And it's supported by things like Hello World magazine, which is written by teachers for teachers, produced by CAS and, and the Raspberry Pi Foundation jointly. Uh, and then there's these CAS local communities in which teachers meet each other in person. Right? There's about 250 of them around the country. That's a lot. Um, so there's some kind of complementarity between online stuff, which you can access any time, and, and the sort of in-person stuff, which makes you feel, as we did tonight... Oh, I'm not alone. There's a teacher put it to me. He said, it's exciting to be here just because I can see I'm not on my own anymore. That's really, you know, that, that drives motivation and, and in a compelling way. So you've got to have both, I think. So, but to, answer, to directly answer your original question, I don't think there's any new piece of tech that we have in mind. 
uh, to support teacher learning beyond online courses on a platform like FutureLearn, which is the one that we're using. Yeah. I, think, I think that tech is not our limiting factor there. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, mainly developing materials and developing the community. But there is a, another thing we need to do is develop the research bit. You mentioned research bites. Computing is such a young subject. We haven't taught it as a school subject for very long. If we could make every computing teacher 10% more effective by sharing with them some, you know, randomized control trial experiments or even just, you know, just research about what works and what doesn't, which an individual teacher can't really hope to do, right, on a controlled level. Um, they're forced to work, as it were, by the seat of their pants. If we can share with them insights about what works and what doesn't, that would mean, that would be like recruiting another 10,000 computing teachers. It would be huge. Sure. Right? Uh, Just to make them 10% more effective. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think research has a big role to play in this. And um, perhaps one of the ways that uh, that could be facilitated is uh, doing a similar thing to what the, the, the UCL Educate pro- uh, program does, where you're actually involving educators in the research. Yes. Sue Sentence, who's here today, ran a lovely one-year or two-year program in which she was she got a, a bunch of teachers as research partners and each of them did a project and they, they you know they each did it together and came together and presented the research project they'd done so this wasn't big randomized control trial kind of thing which is really expensive and needs needs scale yeah. this was individual teachers doing um, action research um, and uh, and sharing it with teachers in their immediate neighborhood so i think yes Research shouldn't be something that we do to teachers. It should be something that we partner with them in doing because they are actually the ones who are face-to-face with the reality every day. So we need, we need, we need funding for educational research, particularly in computing. One of, one of the things I'm sort of on a little mission to do is to find some way of just increasing the volume of CS educational research that we can do in this country and elsewhere. It's a lost opportunity that we put in place a whole new curriculum and you know, subject, a new subject at school. You would think, in any sensible world, we would have people in white coats and clipboards watching what's going on and thinking, is this working, is that working? <laughs> We're just doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah. We should, we should pay attention. Because, Absolutely. Because there's lots to learn here. have been much involved in starting a, a project to, to called um, Project Quantum. Quantum. Quantum, yes. Okay. So this is... About, this is um, taking the idea seriously of diagnostic questions the idea that as part of a pedagogy um, you might use questions as a fundamental part that means that identifying the questions is really good and really important you might use them in class but you might also want to have quizzes that you use very regularly like on a weekly basis this isn't an end of term summative assessment um, like weighing the pig this is more like going to the gym kind of. so um uh, what happens at the moment is computing teachers tend to make up questions uh, because, well, because that's what they have to do at the end of the week to think, have my students learnt anything and what have they missed? Um, but if we could give them a corpus of high-quality questions, that would be incredibly time-saving, right? rather than having every individual teacher making up questions, um, particularly as making up questions is difficult, making up good questions is difficult. It's yeah. difficult when you're an expert it's even harder if you're not an expert in the subject, which many computer teachers are. So, Quantum's um, our idea is to try to build a corpus of high-quality questions. They're actually multiple-choice questions, which is much more interesting than I originally thought. There's a lot of research showing that multiple-choice questions can be a very effective form of diagnostic questioning aid. And then making those available for free forever to computer teachers, and actually, you know, similarly in maths. So one way you can do that is to get a large quantity of uh, pay experts to write questions, and then you have a relatively small number of questions. 
But the thing we're trying with quantum is to crowdsource the questions, to gather from all over the place, and then, they, then the difficulty is, um, how do you know whether they're any good? The idea is that any teacher using this is set up. If there's a, an area that they need some questions on but they can't find any, they can write some of their own. But then that gets added that other teachers can use them and so forth. But then how do you know they're any good quality? So the idea of quantum, which is quite new, is to, to ask what would happen if we took the data from hundreds of millions of answers to tens of thousands of questions written by millions of children and use that data to infer in some way, whether the questions are any good. So rather than paying an expert to say, I think that's a good question or not, you'd ask the data whether it's a good question or not. And so we can apply statistical techniques like rash analysis, but also we started to apply um, you know, all this machine learning stuff that's buzzing about. It's all about getting insights from data, so we're trying machine learning as well. So the, the, um, the exciting possibility here is we really could take data on large, really large-scale data to get quantitative evidence that says which questions work well and which don't, and how hard they are, and which children they might suit. So you might say, well, here are 200 questions that my children have answered so far this term. Tell me the quiz or the collection of questions that would maximise my information gain for this class. If they're all too hard, I gain no information. If they're all too easy, I gain no information. Yeah. So, uh, you can. We'll be based on all this data. We'll be able to say what maximizes information gain. So, I think that's really quite exciting. I think that's a really interesting idea, actually. Uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you about was about um, the role of um, formative assessment, you know, uh, in these types of qualifications and in the curriculum itself, as opposed to the, you know, the need for high stakes examinations, mm-hmm. for example, at the end. Obviously, it's a, it's a quantitative measure of how, how those learners are doing. But in terms yeah. of the, uh, the creative application of that knowledge, so there's um, an element, obviously, of problem-based learning, for example, in the, uh, in the curriculum right now. Do you see that kind of like it's sort of emerging as, a, as a more of a theme and a greater focus? Oh, well, so when I, I'm not an educational expert. I'm a computer science researcher. I study programming languages. But, of course, because I'm so deeply involved in the reform of the computing curriculum, I've read a bit of educational literature, and I often see this dichotomy between the sort of, um, at one extreme, the very traditional knowledge-based approach, and another, the what was called progressive, you know, problem-based learning and inquiry and team-building and so forth. And I think, guys, it's not one or the other. You know, don't set these in opposition to each other. Right? Because you can't be an effective problem solver if you have no knowledge. And if you have a lot of knowledge but you've never applied it, you're also going to be useless. Yeah. So let's stop fighting about this and realise that actually you do need to have... I mean, computer scientists need to have some subject knowledge. You need to know stuff that people have learnt and, you know, and, um, so that that can be part of your sort of hindbrain stuff from which you then do your problem solving. The role of programming in this is quite... Quite interesting. If you're, uh, I think it's you know it's like an unfair advantage that computing has because we have, a there's this body of subject knowledge, but we have this way of bringing it to life, right? By writing programs in which you are constructing artifacts that is something made by someone, namely you, artifacts that have never been made before, and they're crafted not out of wood or steel, which you know there's a limit to how far you can go before it collapses. They're crafted out of, as Fred Brooks puts it, pure thought stuff. You can build castles of infinite complexity, limited only by our own ability to envisage and manage that complexity. So that's sort of hugely rich creative playground. People sometimes say, but computer science is not very creative, is it? Squeezing all the creativity out of the curriculum. I think completely the opposite, Mm. right? Computing is 
tremendously creative subject because we turn children loose with some subject knowledge married with a particular problem or application and encourage them to create something entirely new to solve that problem. I mean, that's one way to widen participation, perhaps, is to show people how they can use it for their own interests. Yes. I was going to ask you, actually, because though there's been quite a significant increase this year, there does seem to be you know, a, a relatively low number of young people taking up the computer science GCSE, particularly girls, uh, who are at the moment only making up one-fifth of, uh, of the entries. Do you think that there's still a bit of an image problem and maybe people are worried that it's too techy? Or maybe they're also worried about you know, that automation may take over some of these roles as well? And do you, do you think that that might sort of shift the curriculum into more creative problem-solving and data analysis and different areas like that? Holly, no. I think if they're worried about computing taking taking over some of these roles they should worry about other things not going they're going to need more computer scientists right if the, if ai is going to be big they're going to need a lot of us right so i think if you're if you're worried about sort of future job prospects then computer science is absolutely something you, you it's guarantee i think of having an amazingly well-paid interesting rewarding job but but i do think we have an image problem absolutely but i think many people see uh, computer science as something that's conducted mainly by socially challenged male geeks who work in windowless rooms and are unable to hold a conversation you know, with you without looking at their shoes. So, but which is absolutely false, even today, about people who are working in broadly the computing sector. But it's a pervasive image problem we have. And as far as young women are concerned particularly, that's a complicated multifaceted kind of thing. It's not just computing, it's across all of science and engineering, actually. And um, it's something which a lot of people have tried very hard to shift. We got a particular um, project as part of the, or sort of related to the NCCE, there was a, a couple of million pounds from the original Chancellor's announcement that's specifically about improving the outcomes for girls in computing. The one thing that I hope might help is starting earlier. If at primary school, girls can, can get the idea that, oh, actually, I can do this better than a lot of those boys, then maybe when they get to secondary school, it'll be easier to retain them. Whereas if, if, it's, you know, you're, if you're first posing that question to them later, when they're you know, 12 or 13 or 14, it's harder for them to overcome the, the cult, bizarre cultural barriers um, because they think, you know, I'm not a geek, am I? But then you know, real, real people who work in the computing industry mostly aren't geeks either. It's still a bit of a problem, but I mean, I also see that that's, that's changing quite a lot, and actually that bears out in the figures. When you look, it's yeah. actually that's twice, twice the amount of, of girls this year. Yeah. You know, it's a, well, a 14% increase in females so, you know, taking up the programmes, whereas a 72 increase overall. The tides are changing. I think but, it's, a, it's a long path, though. It's yeah. a long path. Um, I don't think there will be quick wins here, but I think it's something which we need to continue to pay specific attention to. That is, not just assume it'll all come right, but to actively work. Rather, that as schools actively work to um, make sure that their disadvantaged children you know, have a, a smaller gap between their more advantaged children. It's a very big focus for schools, and I think we need a sort of similar focus, at least particularly within computing, um, on uh, increasing the proportion of young women. It really needs senior leadership to buy into it. This cannot be done by individual computing teachers. So um, insofar as this, you know, this podcast goes to senior leaders, I'd really like to ask them to take a bit of time to understand a bit about what's going on and why it's so educationally important. You saw the explainer video um, that I did. It's only seven minutes long. You know, if they'd all just watch that and get a, a sense, that would be really helpful. Yeah, sure. And obviously that will be in our notes, in That's the show well, notes. Yes, yes. So, so uh, go look at it. Because there's a, we're on a mission, right? <laughs> but we, we need the support of senior leadership because that, they, they, they are the gatekeepers to our schools. They are under intense pressure. Um, yeah. But uh, they're also profoundly motivated 
to make their children's lives better. That's what they're there for, and they, you know, that's what they think about every day. Yeah. Sure. And this really will. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Um, bearing all of this in mind, what do, what do you see as the, as the next uh, milestones for the programme? Oh, well, that's, that's hard to say. Uh, because we're at a stage in which we've gone from naught to 60 in 10 seconds, right? The National Centre started, was only, the contract was only awarded in about November last year. So we're, you know, only eight months in. Um, everybody who's involved in the NCC is working their socks off just to get this entire programme up and running. And we've got very ambitious targets for how many teachers to reach and how many, you know, how many schools to reach. My, my, I suppose my... The main milestone that I would like to reach is to feel that computing was, had become an exciting and vibrant subject in every school in the country. Now, that, maybe that's over-ambitious, but, you know, but not just the cities, not just the uh, schools that are particularly well-funded, but, but really a large proportion of our schools would just say it's become a routine part of what we regard a good education to be. And at the moment, that's not the case. It's patchy. So my principal ambition is to remove the patchiness, right? So we can say, by and large... Provision is good. Like, as you were saying, only 10% of the children at Key Stage 4 do computer science GCSE. Now, it's a, it's not, computer science isn't a whole of the um, national curriculum in computing, so the technical awards complement it. Maybe we shouldn't expect that every, every child will do computer science GCSE, but I think more should, and I think every school should offer it. Mm. Right? It's sad that schools don't even offer GCSE computer science. Yeah. Um, so I'd, that would be for me a, a huge milestone. Would be if every school, every secondary school offered GCSE computer science, but that's a, there's a long path to that. Yeah, and you were saying earlier actually about um, those other barriers, you know, like uh, the, the local governments, the parents, all of these things, and maybe perhaps you're know, seeing that change happen, you know, uh, and widening that participation. Uh, as it's happening with, with young girls and different diversity uh, groups as well, that that will be the catalyst um, for all those other uh, barriers to come down, perhaps. Yeah, I really, I really hope that what, I, what you saw in that video um, that I showed, I, that I do hope that, for, that computing will, for some children at least, be a ladder into the top half of the hourglass economy, into um, you know, highly skilled jobs where they're highly valued, um, it doesn't matter where you, you know, who your parents are or where you learn. If you learn this stuff, you will be highly valued. Um, yeah. And so, so for the children for whom, regardless of their background, including disadvantaged ones, if they find that they're good at this stuff, they, are, they will have a rich and fulfilled professional life. And that is a, you know, it's another, it's another pathway to, um, for them to have rich, fulfilled lives in a, you know, in a, a society that's uncomfortably unequal. Uh, I'd like to convey particularly to school leadership teams a compelling vision about the educational importance of what we're doing. This is not just a way to fill the future employment pipeline or even to give our children better jobs in the future, though it will do that too. It's about giving them a good education. Nobody would accept not teaching maths or natural science at primary school, for example, because you say every child must know some natural science because it enables them to understand and have agency in the, the natural world that surrounds them. And I think we should, we, we should just as fundamentally say no child should go without a computer science education because it enables them to have agency and understand the digital um, world that surrounds them. So 
there's a sort of powerful educational message here. And I think if senior leadership teams get hold of that, they will then think, oh, so I actually should devote attention and time and resources to this, even though they are balancing a you know, hundred other conflicting priorities. I would really like them to see this is a priority that's not being imposed upon me from above. This is something that I want my school to do as a way to give a really good education to my children. There was one, one last question, just quickly, that we ask all of our guests, and that <laughs> we always like to ask people what they're reading at the moment, any interesting books or articles. What am I reading at the moment? Well, I don't know what to tell you. I'm reading articles about machine learning, <laughs> you know, and automatic differentiation and uh, type systems, because this is my, you know, my day job. <laughs> I will tell you, um, uh, I was, um, a little while ago, I read a, um, a book that I enjoyed a lot called Cleverlands. It's by Lucy Crahan. She's a science teacher who stopped being a science teacher for a while and went on a world tour staying on, you know, camping on the floor of teachers around the world. She went to Finland, to Singapore, to China, to Canada, I think. And her idea was to um, just uh, spend a lot of time sitting in classrooms of other countries to see how they do education. It, so it wasn't a sort of formal research project. There's nothing, you know, it's quite, it was quite a sort of subjective story about what she encountered. But I thought it was, I found it very interesting just getting this sort of window into completely different educational jurisdictions and how they go about it. And some of you think, oh, gee, I'm glad we don't have that. Uh, but the, and the thing that, that I remember most vividly from it was her sense that in Southeast Asia, if you, you give a problem to a child and they can't do it, they tend to think, if I just work harder, I could probably do it. So actually, you have to be really careful not to give them problems that are too hard, because otherwise they'll, you know, burn all the hours in the day just battering against this problem. Whereas if you give a problem that to a, a, a sort of Western child, you know, in Europe or um, United States, that they can't do, they tend to think, I'm just not clever enough. Mm. And that was the first time I truly internalised what people mean when they call, they talk about growth mindset. Yeah. Right. It's this sense of... Perhaps, or probably, if I just worked harder at this, I could do it. And then I think, okay, so in the school where I'm a governor, for example, or with my own children, I want to encourage them to think, I can maybe, even if I can't do this now, perhaps if I persist, I can do it. And that's a big educational lesson. But, it, with, uh, but Lucy Crohan brings it to life in this book, so I'll just uh, encourage people to read that. Well, thank you. That was brilliant. I really do appreciate you taking your time to, uh, to speak to me today. And, uh, yeah, we'll pass that on to the listeners. Great. Okay, I'm very privileged to be here with uh, Liza Belazarova, uh, Program Manager for Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa at Google.org, which is Google's philanthropic arm. Hello, Liza. Very nice to meet you and thank you for sparing the time to talk to me. It's been a very inspiring event hearing about the success stories of the program so far. I guess our listeners are probably aware of, of Google's very generous £1 million donation towards the, the teaching training costs for the NCC programme. So as Google.org's programme manager for this region, would you be able to outline for our listeners what inspired Google to be part of the NCCE programme? Of course, firstly, hello, and uh, thank you for this opportunity um, to talk about where our work. You know, we're um, aware at Google that Google as an organisation couldn't have been founded and couldn't have grown without top quality computer 
science um, education. So um, it's something, computer science is something that um, Googlers are very passionate about because we see firsthand the opportunities it has unlocked for us um, as employees of this company. And we know that basic computer science skills like coding, collaboration, and analytical skills are important not just in people's careers, but in lives in general. And it's also um, important for students no matter what professional pathways uh, they choose when they graduate or when they finish school. And we believe that technology can significantly change people's lives. But in order to make that a reality, we need to create opportunities for people to innovate with technology. And that starts with education. Hence, um, we have invested uh, Google.org as Google's um, philanthropy. We have invested over 70 million US dollars globally in computer science education in these efforts. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. So, uh, yeah, obviously, it's, it's really fantastic that it got the support of Google for this program, because obviously, a big part of it is trying to widen that participation. But is there any uh, specific outcomes that, that Google wants for this particular program? Of course, we want to as many teachers as possible to complete um, the courses and grow their skills. Uh, but uh Aside just the participation numbers, what's important for us is to break those barriers around what computer science education is, um, to ensure that teachers grow confidence in teaching computer science, that um, they grow the network of teachers who are passionate about the subject matter. And if um, teachers become passionate ambassadors of computing, then it inspires, obviously, their students to take on computer science. So it's for us, apart from just numbers, which of course are important to create the momentum in England, it's also about breaking barriers, creating ambassadors and creating opportunities for kids, for them also to have interesting and fulfilling careers when they finish schools. So that's that's good. But on the uh, on the participation front then, do you think that there's any other barriers that you uh, think need overcoming to widen participation in computer science here in the UK and indeed globally, especially for females? And do you know of any edtech solutions being used to deal with these issues? Um, yes, um, it's definitely um, something we are thinking a lot about. And as Google.org, we're investing in projects globally in Europe, in um, the US uh, and in other places around um, supporting girls uh, into getting into STEM and computer science. So uh, there's a very interesting um, example uh, that is given by the NCWT in the US where they were saying that when um, girls start computer science, um, they go into the first class and the first problem statement that they see is around poker. So, and for girls, obviously, immediately, you know, you, you don't see yourself, you can't project yourself uh, in these scenarios, in these case studies. So it's interesting that the pipeline for girls into getting, like applying for um, computer science degrees um, is quite high, but there is a huge drop off rate because once they start, they don't you know, actually pursue because they the examples, the scenarios that are discussed are not tailored for women. So there are a lot of projects that we support that help redesign curriculums and uh, create scenarios and case studies which um, speak to different 
groups and uh, that includes women as well and also for example in Europe um, we support an organization in Slovakia which supports girls into um, getting into computer science and what they do is they have a lot of activities so they work with parents they create network groups after school activities and clubs to get the girls understand what it involves and all the different aspects to get their surrounding to be more supportive around computer science education so there's a lot of work going around on the peripheries um, of computer science education to ensure that those barriers are broken or shifted uh, and the perception of computer science education shifts as well through changing the mentality and attitude because that's currently that's the most important work for us yeah it's quite interesting actually from a, a diversity perspective in terms of you know not just gender but cultural mm-hmm. uh, engagement with these topics um, are you aware of the work of uh, Vanessa Andriotti uh, she's uh, someone who I really look up to and she has some really interesting ideas about how to use pedagogy to overcome cultural barriers the, the way that she does that for example she talks a lot about you know analogies as, as a way to convey mm-hmm. complex subjects to children and I think these things are really important you know you say about you know the, the specific examples that are being used but they do have cultural and gender undertones sometimes and, and we do need to think about that you're completely right and I think it's about also creating that sense of belonging and it's a collective sense so for for a girl in order to uh, pick a particular subject she needs to be encouraged by her parents by her surrounding by her peers so it's very important to create um, support networks and community groups to overcome those cultural barriers um, and it's and you know we see uh, these different projects like this um, in Africa in Eastern Europe and Southern Europe and, and it requires a lot of understanding of cultural practice and barriers to um, shift these questions of uh, access so it's I think at this stage it's a lot about understanding psychology I think once the girls actually are encouraged and once they are you know pursue the the education or career in computer science uh, it goes as any other subject matter it's about um, working on the kind of psychological aspect and and barriers and access before that and this is where our focus is predominantly in our philanthropic investment so uh, one thing we always like to ask our guests is uh, is what they're what they're reading about at the moment. <laughs> so are you, are you reading any interesting articles or books? Um, I love I love this I love this question. Um, I have recently become very interested in the last year or so uh, about the questions as we were actually talking questions of belonging and. Um, uh, especially the world today that's becoming increasingly polarized and fragmented. How do you develop a sense of belonging, especially with the developing culture of um, digital and how do we connect now as humanity and what connects us? So I have um, recently ordered uh, Malcolm Gladwell's new book, uh, Talking to Strangers. So I'm um, really excited about reading this and just started reading Braving the Wilderness by uh, Brené Brown, which is a, a fascinating book uh, on helping people understand what what are those social ties um uh what how do those social ties look like uh, now in the kind of digitalized world so that's currently my reading <laughs> very on point very on point i like it yeah very interesting yeah um thank you that's amazing and uh, yeah thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me thank you thank, <laughs> thank you. you so my my job title is head of learning here at the design museum in london And what that means is that I oversee 
the all of the learning programs that we run at the museum. So um, we want to ensure that everyone who comes here has a learning experience. And that means if they're eight years old or 80 years old. And we want to um, provide experiences where people who are either in the design community, they might be practicing designers, or they might be you know, what I might call design curious. They've heard a lot about design, but not really sure what it's about um, and are interested in, in finding out more. So um, I see my role as being the the champion both internally and externally for learning about design um, and but I guess also just hosting hosting and prompting and facilitating dialogues about the role of design in the world today and um, I'm sure we'll talk about this more but I guess and it was said a little bit in my my bio there my real interest is in how can design make a positive contribution mm. um, to society to the environment to the economy um, and we know it has a role to play um, in all of those different ways but I think we're still um, sort of we still often think of design as sort of an elitist thing or sitting outside of um, other subjects and and I think one of the things that I think a lot about and talk a lot about is how we how design is an applied um, subject applied discipline and how connected it is to other things uh, in the introduction I also uh, sort of described the design museum's uh, competition called design ventura um, and I'm sure this is going to be relevant for a lot of our listeners especially those involved uh, within schools so I just wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on um, the competition and uh, who it's relevant for and how they can get involved as well. Uh, yes, I'd be, be delighted to. Um, so Design Ventura is a, a design competition program. It's uh, for students in years 9, 10 and 11. And they are asked to design a, um, to respond to a brief, as you said before, around uh, addressing an everyday problem or need. And it results in the design of a new product uh, that we sell in the design museum shop. So in this sense, it's, it's different from other design competitions out there because it really brings together design and business and enterprise skills. So the young people are asked to respond to, say, a social issue around an everyday problem or need. But then when they go through the judging process, it's sort of like a dragon's den type um, pitching process. And they then we actually make the product and sell it in the design museum shop, which means that they end up working with professional designers almost as um, kind of both client, but also the design team themselves. So they get to see how a professional designer might start to think about material choices, mm. um, branding, packaging, manufacturing. Um, what do you do when you've come up with a product and actually you're now thinking about how do you bring the cost down so it can be accessible to a wider range of people? How can you ensure that it's sustainable? So we've got a big push in recent years to start using, um, to encourage young people to be thinking about using um, different kinds of materials. Mm -hmm. um, so so going back to sort of the, the, the aim of the program, as I said, it's, it's really about combining design thinking and creativity together with business capabilities and skills that we think will help young people um, increase their 
employability in the future. The project was uh, launched in 2010, as you said, and it's in partnership with Deutsche Bank as part of their youth engagement program called Born to Be, um, which you may know about. And as you said, we've had um, close to 76,000 students participate in um, 1,860 schools. So in terms of the practicalities, um, it runs across the academic year and it's totally free. That's the important part. So to anyone out there listening, uh, totally free um, for teachers and schools to participate. And um, we put a lot of effort into the um, support around the competition so that teachers are offered uh, training and and resources to develop their own professional practice, but also then to run the project in in their schools with their um, students. Students are asked to work in teams, um, and then, as I said, we we have a, a shortlisting, and then there's a pitching event where the young people come and pitch their um, ideas to that illustrious judging panel. Um, yeah, some of you mentioned earlier. And then it, it goes on from there, and they develop their idea, and it actually goes on sale in the design museum shop. Um, the last two things I'd say about it are, um, first of all, that all of the proceeds from the sales of the product in the Design Museum shop go to a charity of the young of the winning team's choice, the young people's choice, um, and I think that's an important part about. It. We don't we sometimes forget about that because we're talking about design and enterprise, but actually I think this idea that it's also about giving back and mm-hmm. encouraging young people to think about the good causes that they care about and so all proceeds go to that and the final thing um i'm i'm sure that there's lots of um, uk educators out there and i'm hoping this will be of interest to them but to anyone who might be listening um, outside of the uk the the program is open to international uh, schools to participate um but they compete for a separate prize but we do um we'd love to see more international schools participating That's all for this throwback bonus episode. Our next episode features the amazing Beam working to match crowdfunding and industry training for some of the most hard to reach learners, so don't miss it. For all events, you can go to www.theedtechpodcast.com forward slash events. We have a live podcast recording coming up at Reimagine Education in London in December. For our listeners, there is a promo code giving 30% off to attend and the code is, wait for it, EdTech podcast. There's a link with the promo code already applied in our show notes, so go and check that out. And until next time, bye bye.